Whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. Hello and welcome to the I Could Never Do That podcast. I'm Carrie Barrett, and these are the stories of people who have gone into the arena and fought hard to achieve the unthinkable in spite of the fact that, yes, sometimes they are scared and do have some insecurities. Are you ready to go in? It's my hope that after hearing some of these interviews with thought leaders and artists, athletes, musicians, and entrepreneurs, that maybe you too will be able to go from, I could never do that, to, you know what? Maybe I can. Today's I Could Never Do That episode is overwhelming, and even that is an understatement. My guest is Dr. Don Musalem. And Dawn is a breast specialist at the Jacoby Center for Breast Health at Mayo Clinic, Florida. And how should I say this? Dawn is quite honestly the most alive person I've ever met, which as you'll hear, is a miracle unto itself. We go into specifics, but in a nutshell, she has survived cancer, heart disease, her own cardiac arrest, the death of her first husband, and just over one year ago, she herself became a heart transplant recipient. How anyone can face these challenges and still persevere is what we discuss today. So how did she celebrate her one-year anniversary of becoming a heart transplant recipient? Well, (laughs) naturally, by completing a marathon, the Donna Marathon, which is a fundraiser for families living with breast cancer nationwide. And very clearly, that is close to her heart, since that is her specialty. There are so many I could never do that moments in her life. And yet, with faith and gratitude, Don faced every one of those moments and said, I can do this. It is unbelievable. She is brimming with love, peace, joy, and grace. And in fact, that's what she named her new heart, Grace, which is a gorgeous tribute to her new life and the life of her donor. So please make welcome Don Musalem and Grace. Don, I want to welcome you to the I Could Never Do That podcast. Lord, do we have a lot to unpack today. But first, I want to start off by just giving you a hearty congratulations, Ms. Marathon Finisher. Yeah. Thank you, Carrie, for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. And I know I still can't believe it actually happened. There were times when I was almost having some doubts, but we'll talk about that. Yes, yes. So you finished your first marathon here early February. Was it February 5th, I believe? It was. It was February 6th, actually. February 6th. Okay. The Donna Marathon, which is a marathon that I know holds a lot of meaning for you because you were fundraising, but you are a physician uh, at the Mayo Clinic down there in Jacksonville, Florida. And, And tell me why this particular marathon was important to you from the breast cancer standpoint. 
Yeah, thanks for asking that question, Carrie. So I am actually a physician at the Jacoby Center for Breast Health at Mayo Clinic Florida. And so the patients that I care about are women with breast cancer and women with an increased risk of breast cancer. So I help women help to reduce their risk of breast cancer by optimizing their lifestyle. In some situations, if there's genetic predispositions, we refer patients to surgeons to help to reduce the risk in a more significant way. We even consider in some women with strong family histories medications that reduce the risk of breast cancer. But then the majority of my practice is really women with breast cancer. So I work with these women during and after breast cancer. And I'm a lifestyle medicine physician, so a lot of what I do with these women is help to uphold the healthiest lifestyle possible so that they can mitigate the side effects of treatment, help to improve treatment outcomes, and help to reduce the risk of secondary cancers later on down the road. So, I mean, honestly, my job is my passion, my purpose, my love, and my patients are my everything. And during some of the times in my life when I was the sickest, I'll be honest, the thing that gave me back the energy the most were my patients because they, it was just so cool to see them thrive and exhibit this vitality during a time in their life that was otherwise so difficult. And so going through some of what I've gone through has really equipped me to be really there for my patients in a way that medical school can't teach you. So yes. I've shared with people yes. that, you know, going through what I've gone through in life is something that I personally would never trade in because it's really enriched my life in such a way that it's, it's, allowed me to do what's important to me in a more special way. And let me tell you how profound of a statement that is, that you wouldn't trade what you've gone through in your life because of what it's taught you, because we're going to go down some pretty dark rabbit holes today with what you have gone through. And we'll start with the significance of that marathon because Yes, it was a marathon finish and that unto itself is an amazing accomplishment. But one of the things that we want to celebrate today with you is the fact that you and I are sitting here via Zoom. You're alive by the grace of God and a beautiful soul whose heart saved yours. And it almost feels emotional for me to even say that, that you are here because somebody donated a heart and yeah. So a year ago you had a heart transplant. So tell me about that. <laughs> yeah. So, so where do you want me to start? I like, what part of it do you think is best? So I think with, with your journey, it, oh my gosh, it starts way back when you were, gosh, 2001, did you say that you were actually diagnosed yourself with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Is it, yeah. is that correct? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you were, but a babe in medical school at the time, were you not <laughs> around that time? We just, we figured out prior to us hitting record that we're about the same age that we both grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and we went to competing Catholic schools. How's we, that <laughs> for coincidence? We probably knew each other and when we didn't know we knew each other, but life is such, it's such a small world, right? Life, it's life does really these things. I'll pass cross. Yeah. So let's exactly start right. there. Yeah. So, you know, my whole life was centered around health and wellness. I was one of these very interesting children, but I was enamored by healthy living at a very, very young age. So I lived a really healthy life from the time I was three, four, five. I even myself took self-interest, but my parents were very healthy people as well. So ate healthy, exercised, went to undergraduate studies and studied exercise physiology and nutrition, and eventually went on to medical school. 
And it was a few weeks into medical school that I just wasn't feeling good. And, you know, prior to this, I would run 10, 14 miles a day. I would climb Camelback Mountain once or twice a day. I did fitness contests prior to medical school. So again, fitness, my whole life was something that was really kind of like a fundamental value and just something that I did every single day. But I could no longer, you know, go on just like a simple jog without having a little bit of shortness of breath. So went and saw a doctor and the doctor said, oh, no, this is in your head. This is what all medical students <laughs> get. It's psychosomatic. And you're just like, you know, imagining this. I'm like, OK. And I'm thinking, man, I feel pretty crummy. So I'm like, oh. <laughs> you're a so, stressed you know, out med student. Yeah. yeah, it just keeps on getting worse and worse and worse. And so I saw multiple doctors and they just kept on saying you have asthma. I'd get one inhaler after the next. And then one day I'm going home from medical school. This was about three months into medical school. And I collapsed on my way up the stairs and I was taken to the emergency room. And there was about a 16 centimeter mass in my chest that was wrapped around my heart. It had collapsed my left lung. And so the whole left side of my chest was being pushed over to the right side of the chest because there was all this malignant pleural effusion. And so, so they had suspected that this was probably cancer and they had to take me to the operating room urgently to pull that tumor off the heart and try to reinflate that lung. And I remember waking up and there was this medical student who had indirectly known me through medical school and she was just bawling, just crying. And I was still kind of out of it. This is like the first surgery in my life. It's the first time I've ever been sick in my life. I know I already <laughs> took antibiotics. And I'm like, uh-oh, I think this is something very, very bad. You know, and so this, this doctor, which, if anyone's studying, who's a medical student, who's listening to this, this is what you don't want to do. Yeah, yeah. This doctor comes in and he's like, this is, you know, very bad. You have a very, very bad cancer. This is a stage four cancer. And then my significant other who ended up to be my husband, mm -hmm. he said, well, how much time does she have? And I do one of these like, oh, what? Like, whoa. Well, dumb question. And I'm like, shh. But before I could say that, this doctor answers and he's like, it could be three months. It could be, you know, and we're like, I'm like, what? I'm like, I'm the girl that wants to live to be a hundred someday. This is my goal. I want to be super healthy and live to be a ripe old age and have high vitality. Yes. So nonetheless, that, the next This is day, insane, by the way, Dot. Like that's insane. Uh, and I will, I do, before you go on with that, I do want to ask you like, when you are in med school, yeah. Do you get any, do doctors get training on bedside manner? Is there any communications classes that you can take on how to approach, I don't know, this word called empathy? Or are you just born that way? You know, I think that they probably tap on it a little bit. But honestly, in medical school, when you get those kind of classes, you're like, oh, no, no I just got to get an A in this class so I can get into the residency I want to get into. So I you, got it. This stuff just goes right over your head. Yeah, I would think yeah. now in medicine, the side of medicine that has been really upheld is valuable is that, hum, you know, humanistic side. So I do sure. think people nowadays are taking a lot more interest in this. We know this matters. We know giving patients hope is a critical fundamental part of the healing equation. Yes, yes. So I think things have evolved to this, you know, really truly like original medicine that we need to focus truly on. Sure. So I don't think it's as much of an issue. I see that medical students and fellows and residents I train with, there is some beautiful empathy I've seen in a lot of the trainees that I work with at Mayo Clinic. So I'm, I'm okay. really proud of, of these young students. But this particular Good. doctor didn't get that class. Yes. <laughs> like, people just don't care. Maybe they've never been through it themselves. Maybe, and maybe they just feel honesty is what's necessary. But the blessing came the next day when my doctor, who was going to be my, my oncologist for the treatment course, Dr. Paul, his name was, he was so optimistic, so hopeful. And he just said, 
if you're willing to fight, I'm going to be right by your side and we're going to fight this together. And, you know, he said it's going to be tough. And the treatment entailed four months of what was called CHOP chemotherapy. It was before the Rituxan had come out where it's a monoclonal antibody. I wasn't, it wasn't okay. quite out and ready for use yet. So I used just the plain CHOP. But because they knew individuals with this diffuse B-cell lymphoma, that's a really aggressive type of cancer, has a very high likelihood of coming back, they also recommended a bone marrow transplant after I was okay. done with my initial chemotherapy. So finished my chemo and then got admitted back to the hospital for my bone marrow transplant. And back in that time, this was in 2001, just like you said, mm-hmm. this is when they would admit you to the hospital. You're kind of like the girl in the bubble because they're gonna give you tons of chemotherapy and radiation in most situations. And they just plummet your immune system all the way down to zero. They just kill every immune cell possible. So you can't be exposed to any infections. But my doctors were really super cool. The doctors who were with me, this was through City of Hope. Dr. Scriber, his name was, he was awesome. He would bring in jazz music for me to listen to. He brought in this bald head called phrenology and he would study my bald head and be like, oh, you have a dent here. That's what this means. Or, oh, you have this here. That's what this means. That's so cool. We studied phrenology during the six weeks I was in the hospital. He had a bicycle that was brought specially into my room because he knew I loved to exercise. And then every morning they would let me sneak out of my room at 4 a.m. to ride another bike that they had set up for me that overlooked the vistas of the mountains of Arizona, which was amazing. I I love that. I oh, love the that. sunrise. It gives me chill. I mean, it was so therapeutic and so healing. And they let my classmates bring homework up to me. They let my professors bring tests up to me. So I stayed in school. I rode my bike. I, I lived as normal of a life as possible. I set my alarm during my bone marrow transplant at 4 a.m. I brought colorful clothes. That's always been something that I've done where uh, don't wear that hospital gown if you don't need to. Try to make your life feel as close to your life while you're in the hospital. So I'd have colorful clothes and you know, it's always a hassle to ask the nurse to have to unhook your IV and do these things, but they never mind. They don't. Mm-hmm. And it's going to mm-hmm. add back to your value. Bring some tennis shoes or walking shoes, stuff you can walk around the hospital in without having to, you know, slip in socks or something like that. So got through the bone marrow transplant. And actually, I remember looking out to the other patients and feeling so vital. Like, I, I still felt really energized. I look back at pictures now and I looked awful, but I didn't <laughs> feel that. I mean, I looked awful, but I felt phenomenal. And I mean, clearly let's like the attitude that you brought to your healing cannot be understated in that journey. It just sounds like you set yourself up for success. That doesn't always mean that you're in the clear as we'll find out. However, attitude is so instrumental in positive outcomes. Carrie, it really is. And, you know, I was just so determined to kind of be an outlier, right? Or to, you know, have this radical remission. There's actually a book that's titled this. I I wanted to prove that original doctor wrong. And maybe it was great that he told me that. Like, it just put my, you know, boxing gloves on. And I wanted to just prevail through this and just prove him wrong in such a way. And so I was determined to, to be a victor over this cancer. And I would do a lot of guided imagery, like when I received my chemotherapy and I talked to my patients about this. So I have patients oftentimes that come and see me at Mayo Clinic knowing that I do integrative oncology or this lifestyle medicine approach to care. And they think that I'm gonna say, okay, you don't need to do chemotherapy. We'll just do the lifestyle. And that couldn't be harder, you know, farther from the truth because it's the collaborative effort of both conventional therapy, 
plus these integrative modalities where I feel healing really truly occurs. Cancer is an ugly thing. It's gonna take some ugly medicine to eradicate that cancer. But if we can uphold this healthy lifestyle and complements you know, the treatment with some integrative modalities to mitigate those side effects, patients can do really, really well, but we need to accept that treatment. And so when I would get my chemotherapy infusions, I would do guided imagery. I would have a mantra that, oh gosh, you know, this medicine is available to me that's gonna kill this cancer. I was tickled. I was so excited to get my chemotherapy. But you have to shift that mindset. If you're terrified of getting your chemotherapy and you think this is gonna make you nauseated and throw up and feel sick, I guarantee you're gonna have every one of those symptoms. You're, you're gonna manifest those symptoms if it's that way in your mind. So you need to kind of rewire your brain to accept it and to kind of reframe it as something that's gonna save your life and it's gonna be perfect after. Mm, and so that's mm. exactly what I did. And so it worked for me and it's worked for a lot of my patients that have struggled in the beginning to kind of reframe it, to accept it so that they can get through treatment much more seamlessly. And it's not easy. I mean, there certainly are times in days that are rougher than others, but the overall tone for the treatment ends up being one that's very victorious and one that's filled with vitality despite yes. what you're going through. Yes, so finished yes. my bone marrow transplant and I went into remission. There was no evidence of disease. So it was fantastic. Awesome. I mean, yeah, it was just so cool when they tell you that it's gone. There's no evidence of your disease. And then yeah. I had to do radiation afterwards. So I did like two more months of radiation after the transplant and I did terrific. You know, they had told me I would never be able to have a baby and it was what it was. You know, it's one of those things where, again, it wasn't ideal. Here's a young woman. You're being told you can't have a baby. My husband and I, it, it just was one of those things. So then in 2003, I start getting these headaches. I was losing weight. I was getting ready uh, to move to Florida because that's where my husband's business was. I just wasn't feeling good. And so they were doing MRIs and PET scans. They thought the cancer was back is what they thought was going on. Yeah. yeah. I don't well, of course. Yeah, Would you I mean, not suspect I mean, that? Yeah, yeah. I thought so too. I mean, that, I was a little cynical. I was like, uh -uh, this is not a good thing, but wasn't scared. Maybe we could get back on top of it. But I was quite suspicious. Maybe the cancer was back. But I had my gynecology appointment. I said, could I be pregnant? And they're like, no, there's no way possible. I said, can I just do a pregnancy test? And again, they're like, no way possible. So this nurse comes in the room. I'm like, can you just give me a pregnancy Can I please just do a pregnancy test? She's like, sure, go ahead. So, so I do it and they come in and they're like blue, like they, they were blue and they're like, you're pregnant. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so here I'm pregnant and it turns out, you know, they do blood tests and stuff. They do an ultrasound right then and there. And I'm like four and a half months pregnant because oh, time had gone on. You know, I wasn't having menstrual cycles and stuff. So there was no way for me to know I was pregnant, but oh my gosh, it was such a miracle. So a true miracle. So I have my daughter, Sophia, and it was just the most amazing thing possible. And that was I mean, 2002, that 2003? Was two, yeah, you're yeah, so good, yeah. Carrie. Yeah. <laughs> that was 2003. And I mean, really, truly the most miraculous, most special thing that God ever gave me. It just, I'm just so blessed to have had that opportunity and be given that gift. But a few weeks went by and then all those symptoms kind of resurfaced that I had when I was diagnosed with cancer, that shortness of breath, that difficulty kept, you know, getting enough air into my lungs and I felt really weak and I felt like I was gonna pass out, kind of like I did that day that I was going up those stairs. So my family took me to the emergency room and the x-ray actually looked kind of similar. There was fluid in both of my lungs this time, but it was both of the lungs. And initially they're like, uh -oh, this looks pretty bad, but they noticed my heart looked big too. 
So they did an ultrasound of the heart and they noticed that it was only beating at 8%, which is- Oh my gosh. And were you pregnant? Well, no, I had delivered Sophia. You'd, so you'd had she Sophia. Was about okay. Three months old at the time. Thank oh, jeez. Okay. It was so hard. You know, I'm thinking if my mom would help me. I couldn't hold her. I couldn't do any of these things that I should have been able to do, especially for someone that was otherwise so fit up to this point. Mm-hmm. So I was diagnosed with dilated cardiomyopathy, and it was suspected that it was, you know, from a few different things, maybe from the chemo, from the radiation, maybe even from the pregnancy, because there is such a thing as postpartum cardiomyopathy. But Nonetheless, it wasn't going to change what was going on. I had okay, so you, yeah, you couldn't, they could not pinpoint it to some sort of genetic predisposition that you may have had on this heart condition. Like it doesn't run in your family or, or anything that, so uh, honestly, you just don't know. Yeah. No, but you just asked a really awesome question. So, you know, when it comes to, to these sorts of diagnosis and findings, and being treated for these sorts of conditions, you really want to be in an academic medical center. And so I was actually the first patient ever to be enrolled in a study looking at this dilated cardiomyopathy. And so they actually have part of my heart and they're studying the genetics on it to see if there's certain genes that predict which patients are going to be more susceptible to these sorts of cardiomyopathies. And there is some suggestion that maybe there's a little link to that same gene that causes chemotherapy associated cardiomyopathy may be a very similar, if not the same gene that causes postpartum cardiomyopathy. Oh my gosh. So yeah. So they're learning so much in medicine. So this is what's super cool is to be able to know that scientists are so interested when things don't go quite right to fix it. And that's where the American Cancer Society, the Donna Marathon, the Mm -hmm. fundraising, this money is helping to figure out how we can cure cancer and do it in a less toxic way. And so that's what's super, super cool about this whole thing. So I, you know, I'm really, really fortunate. Got diagnosed with this cardiomyopathy. It was really terrifying. Um, The doctor who I had at the time, this was not at Mayo Clinic because we went to just a local emergency room. I had really, really good care, but you know, they said, you know, this heart's not gonna last you a year. You're gonna need to be urgently listed for transplant. And they had referred me to Mayo Clinic. So that was when I went to Mayo Clinic, even though I was doing some rotations and stuff like that at Mayo Clinic, now I was becoming a patient at Mayo Clinic. And I remember meeting my medical team there, Dr. Yip, who was absolutely amazing. Again, just filled my heart with hope. You know, like, hey, no, we don't think you're necessarily need a, need a transplant. We're going to get you in cardiac rehab. I'm like, yes, I get to yes. exercise. Yeah, I was just going to say, you. yes, yeah. to me, that means exercise. <laughs> I was so excited. And they were going to give me medicine. So they made some medication adjustments and they felt really confident that my ejection fraction 8% would improve with these therapies. And it did. So it worked its way up to like 16%, 18 eh, percent. You know, I still wasn't feeling too hot, but I, I could still do stuff, right? Is normal 100%? That's a good question. So no, normal isn't actually 100%, Carrie. It's more like about, you know, 60 to 70% is about, okay. it's about perfect. Yeah, really 55 to about 70% is about perfect. Um, so, okay. That's so, good to know. That's good to yeah. know that when I'm, when I'm running a 5k at full tilt, that I still have 40% <laughs> left. Oh, you're, you're <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Good. Yeah. You yeah. Have okay. a good 65% pump. Okay. 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 Oh yeah, the stuff you do, oh, you better believe it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, if the heart was pumping completely, then it wouldn't have the ability to get the blood in and out. So it has to have that little bit of flexibility there. Excellent. Uh, okay. So very hopeful, you know, I did better. And I'll say from 2003 
up until 2008, it was kind of like, I'd have a good year, then I have a bad year, then I have a good year, then I have a bad year. It was just this up and down heart failure really stinks. And mm. it's just so hard for young people to be stuck with a diagnosis like this, because, you know, when you hear of heart failure, you think of someone who maybe had a heart attack or who's an older person, but there are a lot of people in this world who have heart failure because of, like you said, genetic reasons or because of an infection or because of perhaps like what I went through, maybe the postpartum mm -hmm. cardiomyopathy or chemotherapy, many other reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, there can be some infiltrating diseases uh, that cause uh, cardiomyopathy as well. So there's a lot of different causes. So it doesn't mean heart failure equals older aged people. It can happen to younger age people, but the syndrome is the same and it's not fair at any age to have to go through those symptoms. But the hope mm -hmm. is that these medicines can help to some degree. They ended up doing this special device that's called a biventricular pacer that helped the heart beat a little bit better. Um, and then unfortunately in 2008, my husband actually passed away. And that was a really, that was really the worst part of anything I've gone through. That, that is a showstopper. Like that's yeah. devastating. And when you had sketched out some of these life bullet points and with that particular notation, you just had to be in your twenties. I mean, I'm yeah. sure you were both young and you actually said like that was the first time that you had lost hope that you're yeah. like, I can't, I can't keep doing this. It's so true. And it gave me such a different level of respect for my own family, what they've been through all these years, because as a patient, you know, God really, I feel for me at least gave me strength and resilience to get through what I needed to get through as gracefully as possible. But the poor family isn't necessarily equipped with that same level of of hope and knowing and strength. And they feel bad because they see the loved one suffering. But for me, when it comes to loss, and especially, it doesn't really matter, honestly, I think it'd be sudden loss or, you know, you watch someone who's sick chronically pass away. There is nothing more difficult in life than loss. Um, mm -hmm. it was and just he so also had cardiac arrest. Is that correct? It was. It, it's, it's right. It was a sudden cardiac arrest. And, you know, it was just so challenging. And I just remember like, and I've always been such a positive, optimistic, hopeful, happy, like nothing gets me down sort of person. But this just flattened me out. I wasn't necessarily down, but I couldn't get up. I, I remember I described this, I couldn't put the radio on. Like I couldn't have any external stimuli coming into my body because I didn't even know how to respond to it. It was just flat. My existence was totally non-responsive to any external stimuli for like six to nine months. It was so interesting. And, you know, there's this, uh, when it comes to grieving, there's like this cycle that people go through that they claim, but it's, I just feel like it's like a, a Ferris wheel and you never get off. You just keep on going on this cycle. Sure. And I just felt like I just wasn't getting better. And it was around nine months or so after my husband passed away that I just had this feeling that it was time for me to be strong and try to move on. And so I considered dating at that time. And oh my gosh, there's just no book out there. And so <laughs> I, I would, I researched online. I'm like, what do you do? There was no support groups. And that was really tough for me because people judge you if it's too early and you're dating. Oh so yeah. And you're young. Like, I mean, I keep coming back to like, you were a young widow and you had a five-year-old daughter at the time. Five, and yeah. so there's really no playbook for that. There wasn't, and it was the weirdest thing what you do because I would go to church and I remember this is probably the perfect place to meet a man. And I remember looking for men with wedding rings. I mean, I would do like this crazy <laughs> stuff. I can't believe I'm admitting this, but this is what I think 
widows do. They go through this process and, and then I would feel guilty. Like I'd go home and be like, that's terrible. How can you do this? But my message out there to widows, no matter what age it is, is you deserve companionship. You deserve love and you deserve to live your life because that's what your spouse would want for you. I never had the chance to ask my husband that before he passed away, but I promise you, I did get remarried. Mm -hmm. And once I got remarried, that is when my healing with my heart failure was able to kind of to start to, to improve again, right? Because I had done okay from that time of being diagnosed with heart failure up into the time that my husband died. But once he died, I was just stuck. And it wasn't until I got remarried that I could kind of be not, you know, not, not that we need to rely on people to lift us, but it gave me purpose again in my life that mattered. Like I enjoyed making dinner for my husband and, you know, having those special moments that a woman and a, and a man do together in their marriage. So it was really mm -hmm. an important time for me. And just that unity as a family with my husband, Brandon now, and my daughter at the time, it was just really special for all of us to kind of have that family unit once again, be reestablished after losing my first husband and my daughter's father. So, yeah. um, you know, that would really be my message to, to widows out there, both men and women. If, if it feels right to you, don't worry about what other people are thinking. They will ultimately be so tickled to see you happy once again. That's what everyone yeah. wants for you. And for me, you know, the timeline worked for me and I was blessed to meet my husband now and we have been happily married ever since. And that's great. Been by my side, but we've had that conversation during everything I've gone through. If, if anything happens to me, wait a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I want you to be happy, but not yeah. that like, quickly. Hey, yeah, yeah. I don't know if I want you living in my house and she's not yeah. in my clothes and she can't wear my shoes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There were some rules I gave him. <laughs> you know, it's, it is, it is, it's, it's uh, funny is not the right word, but that's the first word that came to mind. But, um, yeah. uh, my husband's brother, um, lost his first wife about 12 or 13 years ago. I'm, I know I'm getting the, the years wrong, but, um, and they were both in their early forties. She, she had had a long history with cancer and would, would beat it. And then it would come back, would beat it. Would, and, um, <clears throat> so, un, you know, unfortunately she, she succumbed, but she was sick for a while and, um, they did have some of those, those conversations and, you know, I don't, I don't, it, it took him about the same, like at least a year or so before he felt that, um, like you said, just, uh, just able, the ability to actually take things in and maybe put himself out there, like to put energy out there to, to start dating again. And like you, he did, you know, he's, he's remarried and has a new life now and, and wonderful memories of, of his former wife. And so I think that that's great advice, which is to always hold those memories dear and near, but, but maybe, um, not shutting yourself off completely. Very easy for me to say, because I've not gone through anything like that. No, but you're absolutely right. You still want to celebrate life, but then celebrate the life of the person you once loved mm -hmm. and never forget that. Hold on to that tightly. And it's really special, and I've seen this with many individuals who have remarried, is that their previous family with their spouse who died and their new family with their spouse they're now married with, 
there there's a lot of you know family gatherings that we're all together and it's so yeah. special and all the families end up loving each other in a way that's just really remarkable and then you have this kind of ongoing celebration of life moving forward in the spirit of that person who has passed away and i know for me being faced with my mortality on several different uh, you know health obstacles that is what i would want my family to do you know yes. i think if in our human world what we're experiencing right now there is no more important time than for us to uphold the importance of love and unity and this experience of of togetherness and these social connections so i couldn't mm -hmm. encourage that more Mm, just that's fantastic to, to keep that heart happy yeah. and, love. Very, very and then when you met uh brandon your current <clears throat> husband was this in florida which is which is now where you reside so have you been there ever since i have yeah okay I've yeah yeah florida ever since i moved here you know after my daughter was born and all ohioans go to florida <laughs> don't they all yeah 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 i missed arizona though and even to this <laughs> okay. day i sometimes i'm like ooh. Oh, we have a Mayo <laughs> Clinic in Arizona. So I was hey, like, I'm okay. work for a little bit. I'll come yeah. to work. Yeah, I enjoy yeah. Arizona and the experience with the mountains. And, and the desert. Oh, I love high desert. Yeah, yeah. It's so fun. There's so much outdoor <laughs> activities that I can do now that are so exciting. Yes, so yes. I did great from like 2010 until 2016. I mean, it was like, Heart failure was still there, but I had my limits were much less again. I felt really good. It really shows, you know, same thing when I was married before my husband passed away, how love and social connections are so important to overall mm. health and well-being. Mm. Um, and where you were practicing, so you had gone through medical school, you'd gone through residency, yeah. you were now a practicing physician. Time does pass, but you are now in this calling, I, you know, a profession, a calling where you are now starting to realize the importance of the work that you're doing and yeah. giving back, especially yeah. given the health history that you'd had up to this point. Had you from the beginning worked with, um, as a breast cancer specialty? No, that's actually okay. such a great question. And, you know, my career, there was a time when my, when my husband did pass away that I took a little bit of time off of work, but I was still volunteering at a free medical clinic that was downtown. And then I eventually went back to work and um, I actually did my residency in primary care. And I did an additional year of training in hospital medicine because I was feeling really good at that time. And I was like, my energy is actually improving. And I loved the adrenaline and the excitement. And I loved, you know, thinking on my feet. So hospital medicine was really something that was intriguing to me. And, and because of what I had gone through with my cancer, I was actually kind of good at it because I had experienced like all these <laughs> exactly. medicines. I've been a patient so much. So it was, it was really wonderful. And I loved communicating with patients who were in the hospital because, you know, it's a time when a lot of folks have such significant vulnerability. And so I could really be there by their side to help comfort them. And the majority of the population I worked with in the hospital tended to be a lot of the cancer patients as a hospice that would help manage the other comorbid conditions or what was going on. But I loved being a hospitalist. Um, and then around 2015, I was invited to take an opportunity at the Jacoby Center for Breast Health. And it was at this time that I was really excited to ask them and, and to work on starting an integrative medicine and breast health program at Mayo Clinic Florida. So that's exactly what I did. And it, the timing was really interesting because it was around 2015 that my symptoms started started to be a little difficult again with heart failure. Okay. I just 
couldn't keep up as much. I had to, you know, ask for more daytime schedule. I couldn't do as much nighttime work because I would have lower extremity swelling or more shortness of breath. And I just wasn't feeling like my normal self again. I was a lot more tired. And so it was getting a little bit concerning what I was starting. I couldn't go up the stairs. I would always try to use the stairs at work, but I couldn't go up the stairs anymore. And so my doctors were like, Dawn, you have to probably slow down. And so it was perfect timing. It's like God is always there for me to help protect me. And so I got this great opportunity to transition to the outpatient side of medicine, started the Integrative Medicine and Breast Health Program at Mayo Clinic, Florida. And that has been just my joy. I just absolutely love everything I do as part of my work. But then in 2016, I was at Mayo Clinic in Florida and I had a presentation to do around the lunch hour. And I was walking down the stairs to my presentation and I remember my legs like shaking. And I thought, this is weird. I felt so peculiar. So I got to the room where I needed to present. And I remember just standing outside for a minute because I thought, what is going on? And I was like, this is not right. And I'm like, I don't get nervous for presentations. I love presenting on these sorts of topics when it comes to health and wellness. And I was talking to a group of doctors, actually. And so they came out to the, the hallway. And they're like, are you ready to present? I'm like, I guess so. So I proceeded. <laughs> and they have oh, a seat no. ready for me at the head of the table. I'm like, oh, oh this no. is not feeling hot. So I sit down and they pass me the mouse. And I'm like, oh. This is feeling so weird. And I remember looking down and seeing the red nail polish of the woman who handed me the mouse. That is about the last vibrant color I saw. So I put my hand on the mouse and I look up to my slides and I remember, you know, you try to control the mouse and try to see the cursor on the screen. Yes, on the screen, yes. And I remember thinking, okay, I feel like I'm moving it left. Why is the cursor not going left? And I I couldn't coordinate my hand to to the cursor and then everything started getting further and further away distant-wise. The people in the room just got kind of cloudy. And the next thing you know, I just remember being in a state of existence that was peaceful. I don't remember falling. And honestly, to this day, I don't think I fell. I was seated and I, they must have lowered me to the ground. But what I remember in my experience was everything was black and dark. There were no white lights. And so I chose <laughs> yeah. a very bad sign, a very, very bad sign. There, no oh, tunnel, huh? No tunnel. Okay. No, okay. Tunnel, no bright white light, no angels. It was just dark, yeah. but it was incredibly peaceful and still. And it was cool. Like the temperature was very cool. And there was, there was just no concern and no fear. It was like just a state of existence that was very safe feeling, which is super cool to describe this, right? And so I did have a defibrillator in my chest, but it wasn't shocking the rhythm at first because I had what was called fine ventricular fibrillation. So it almost was like a flat line because it was so narrow and complex. So the defibrillator couldn't even see it. So finally, my defibrillator did start to shock me, but it wasn't shocking me successfully after multiple shocks. And then eventually the heart rhythm came back. So, you know, one of my electrophysiology doctors who is just absolutely incredible gentleman, Dr. Azure Batham, he really felt that the heart rhythm may have just come back spontaneously. He himself said he's not really convinced the defibrillator successfully shocked the rhythm because it was so flat. So he just, just thought it was amazing that the heart did regain its rhythm. So this is what I remember. I remember (laughs) 
All I remember is I guess I was laying on the floor because I remember the next thing being on the floor, getting this last thump from my defibrillator. It's like a horse kicks you. Your is whole that body, what it like, feels like? It, like yeah. an internal? Okay. Okay. Oh, I, it's clearly. It's like a, Boom. Like, I mean, it's just like, like you, like you, and I'm a tiny woman. And so, you know, it's just like this huge thud. And I joke where it's like, all of a sudden I like bounced up on my bottom. I don't know if I really bounced up on my bottom or if the defibrillator bounced me up on my bottom, but I literally, when I woke up, bounced up on my bottom and I was like, okay, I can finish my presentation. <laughs> stop it. Just stop it. <laughs> I was so energized because I had all these catecholamines and I was like, I am fine guys and boy i felt <laughs> phenomenal i was like i was a chatterbox i couldn't be quiet they're like uh you need to just lay down and relax for a moment um you just flatlined um how long were you out how long were you gone i don't know you know i never asked that question because there's sometimes you don't you don't want to know so don't i never really know. asked that question it felt for me it felt like a while like i felt like i was in that place for a while, but I never really asked that question. I think it was probably a few minutes is based off what people <gasps> kind of Oh my God. Uh, you know, and no one thought I was having a cardiac arrest because, you know, there were a few, one of my friends who's a male doctor, he's like, did you just have too much caffeine? Like, these are the things people are asking me before they found out what was wrong with me. They're like, did you just not eat that morning? Did you just not sleep the night before? Were you nervous? I'm like, yes. no, 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 no. Like, I have yes. My heart just stopped. And you guys should have done CPR. Did anyone check my pulse? And one female. Oh, this is like a room full of doctors. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> one of my colleagues, like, I thought for sure you had a seizure disorder. I'm like, okay, none of those. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> so they all learn their lesson. And we yes. all like, you know, but you don't think something like this can happen to your friend, right? No. Well, and again, somebody who is uh, relatively healthy. I'm putting that in the air quotes because yeah. if they didn't know your health history yeah. or the yeah. extent of your health history yeah. at this point, you're what, 40 years old, 40, 41. I mean, this was, this was, let's see, yeah. five, this was five or six yeah. years ago. So that's right. Yep. Oh so, yes. Young, vibrant. I mean, your personality now I'm sure was just it's as magnetic same. back then. Yeah. yeah it was I didn't look yeah. sick. And that's that's the hard thing with heart failure is you don't look sick. And I'll tell you, that's the most insulting thing you can tell. Oh, you look so good though. Cause it's like, oh, cause it's so invalidating, right? You're yeah, like, yeah, I, yeah. I may not look sick, but I feel so awful. And so, you know, a lot of people I think, think you can do more when you can't. So you feel like, I just feel like my life was hijacked. You know, I, I was like shackled by heart failure. I just couldn't do everything I wanted to do, especially for me, cause I'm so high energy otherwise. So it was just so challenging living with heart failure. And after that cardiac arrest, everything was pretty much downhill after there, mm -hmm. you know, they, mm -hmm. we kept on trying interventions and different procedures and manipulating the defibrillator and pacemaker opportunities. And whew, it was, it was one complication after another. I felt like my poor colleagues were always having to cover for me and God bless them to this day. They were so supportive. Every one of my colleagues and they never once made me feel guilty. They were just always there to say, Hey, Don, we got this. Don't worry. Mm. And my patients were always just so lovely and understanding. So I had such a beautiful situation. And then around 2018, um, I, I, you know, I got so sick to the point that I couldn't even examine patients anymore. I would try to examine patients and I would have to lean against the exam table because my legs weren't strong enough to hold me. And even when I would use my arms to examine them, I would almost feel like I would pass out because I was using my arms and standing. Talking was difficult where I learned to have this little skill where if I was starting to feel dizzy from talking to my patients, I would just ask them a question. I had a few open-ended questions I knew I could ask that patients would just talk for a while on. 
and I would just throw one of my open-ended questions out there and just let them talk to give me a break so I wouldn't have to talk. So I had all these little maneuvers figured out to where how Dawn could work with end-stage heart failure, and it worked for a while. But it got <laughs> okay. to the point that- <laughs> You are killing me. Okay. I mean, hard. this is- um, Okay. I have a question, though. Yeah. Were you at all transparent with any with your patients and let them know, or you just, you don't want that? The, there has to be that doctor-patient separation, I would imagine. Like- yeah, most yeah. of my patients knew I had, a lot of my patients knew I had had the cancer, but very few of them, if any of them knew about the heart okay. failure. Um, I remember one time I thought I was going to have another one of those episodes and I was moments away from telling that patient, okay, I am about ready to pass out. I think you're going to need to call 911. I have heart failure, by the way. So if I do pass out, just do some <laughs> chest compressions, okay? <laughs> but it never happened. But this is the stuff towards the end. I was like, okay, it, enough is enough. One day I was going home. I could barely make it to my car. And I remember just sitting in my car for like 15 minutes crying. And I called my cardiologist. I'm like, I, I, I could hardly make it to my car tonight. You know, my legs were just so weak. And that's when finally they just said, this mm. is just too much. So I started, you know, working from home more. It was a few weeks after that, I was actually driving home from an appointment at Mayo Clinic with my daughter. And I again, felt that profound weakness and dizziness. And I told my daughter, honey, I think I may pass out. So I was able to pull over in the car and I actually did pass out while oh, driving with her. So yeah. that was it. That was the last time I drove. So I ultimately had one more attempt at surgery to see if it would help. They did a device to try to help the mitral valve function a little bit better. And then that surgery caused a complication that sent a, actually a clot that went up to my eye. So I lost some vision in my left oh, eye. Oh, geez. Okay. And so that was it. So that was okay though. That was the sign that it's time to list you for heart transplant. That was the most hopeful day in the world. I remember Brandon and I, we were driving down to Miami and they called and they said, you've been listed. You know, you go through this crazy panel of tests. It's like a week worth of tests. Like you will never believe. And finally they put me on the list in December. It was December 5th of 2019. And I remember my husband and I, and, and the nurse calls me and I'm like, oh, we're going to Miami for our anniversary. Is this okay? And she's like, well, I mean, you know, you're small, <laughs> so it's possible that you could get called really soon because there's not many small people. So if there's a small heart that comes in, you're going to get the call right away. And so I remember my husband both look at us at each other. We're like, should we go home? I'm like, no, yeah, it's only yeah. six hours away. So we enjoyed our vacation. No call, right? Another uh, month goes by. No call. We're back home. Another month. 14 months go by. No call. And your condition is, is it stabilized or is it getting worse at this point? Well, I wasn't working at work anymore. This was around the time. This was COVID. COVID. Yep. Yeah, this is so COVID. The silver lining of COVID was everything went virtual. So it was mm -hmm. awesome for me because I got to do my work virtual at that point, but I really had to water down my schedule and the Mayo Clinic was just so supportive of that. So I only saw patients like three days a week and I'd only see like two or three patients a day, but gosh, I mean, I'd see a patient and what would be like a 30 or an hour appointment for most people, mine would be like two hours. Like they just give me all this time in the world. And then I take a nap and then I'd see another patient. And so it was really lovely, but I started just to get more sick to the point that it was no longer safe to be at home. And so that's when the doctor said, we need to admit you to the hospital so that we can keep an eye on you. So nothing catastrophic happens. So I was in the hospital and they gave me IV medications to help the heart beat more effectively. I was never a candidate for one of those heart pumps or uh, one of those artificial hearts or in a balloon that helps the heart beat a little more effectively because of my body size and radiation. So I was kind of stuck. The only next treatment was gonna be something that was really, really invasive to keep the heart and body perfusing properly. 
so the medicines that I was given helped the heart beat a little bit better, but I didn't feel that much better, honestly. I just, I still felt pretty poorly, even despite those medications. Mm -hmm. And then after almost two weeks of being in the hospital, my cardiologist got a call one night that they found a heart that was, looked like a good match for me. How and many so, months later? Seven, this was almost 17 months, 14 yeah. months after you were on yeah, the list? Yeah, it was, it was 14 months after I was originally listed. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. my gosh. And, and such an organ, sh organ shortage. You know? Let me, let me ask a question. When they, when you were admitted to the hospital and here you were in the hospital for, for two weeks and like, are, are you, are they preparing you to die at this point? I mean, what you said that the next the next procedure, if you didn't get a heart, were some really, really invasive treatments. And, and then that would be it. Like, it, it just sounds yeah. like when you say end stage cardiac uh, or end stage heart disease, it just sounds like you're in this hospital and they're just preparing you for palliative care. And this is yeah. it. You know, I never got that feeling. I remained hopeful the entire time because you I really felt that there was always something else. So the next step would have been something like what's called ECMO. And a lot of COVID patients have to go on ECMO to help to perfuse the body properly. So there is like a life supportive therapy that they can use to sustain life up until the time a heart becomes available. But the problem okay. is, is patients that get pushed into that corner, they don't do as well typically after their transplant. It takes them a lot longer to recover because their body is on this machine where they just can't move around. So ideally for transplant patients, when they're going through heart transplant, you want to try to keep that patient as active as possible. That's why these artificial pumps, these they're called LVADs, these left ventricular assist devices, they put these in patients and they send them home and they want these patients to exercise and be active so they can get their body strong again in preparation for the heart. And when they give you those IV medications, they want you in the hospital to stay as active as possible. But the reality is, is patients die on the transplant list and the organ shortage is why. And, you know, I, I always share this, these statistics with people that 95% of Americans believe in organ donation, but it, you know, less than 60% about sign up. So you, you have to take that step. You have to register. And it's so easy to be an organ donor. You could do it on your health app. You could do it on your iPhone You can go to donate life America, tell your family you know, and, and I'll share with you, you know, so when my cardiologist came in and told me that there was a heart available, you would have thought that I would have been ecstatic, right? I was sick to my stomach. I, I was like almost mad, like mad and sad at the same time that it's like, oh my gosh, here I have to take someone else's heart, right? These, these weird emotions go through your mind because now someone else's family is going to be grieving just so that you could be alive. And I had a friend who recently said, yeah, Dawn, but that person was going to die anyways, but it was that person's decision that they wanted to continue life for another person if they could. And so that's how I totally look at this now. And I just say, you know, organ donation really transforms the finality of death. You know, death is the end, but it doesn't have to be. You can instead, you know, transition that into more existential hope purpose and essentially vital existence. And that is what we need to do for, for patients. And I will share that, and I, you know, we can keep on talking, but when you receive that organ, something miraculous happens. And so I'll, I'll, I'll back up before I go to that. So my cardiologist shares this with me. It's really hard to process. It was, I remember shaking. My hand was shaking when I called my husband to be like, they have a heart. He's like, what do you mean? And it's like, our, our whole family. <laughs> they didn't wait 14 months for this, right? But we were all like shocked because it's like, 
Yes. You just don't believe it, right? And yeah. even the doctors tell you, you know, usually your first call when they have a heart is called a dry run. But, you know, something's going to be wrong with the organ and they have to do all these tests for the organ. So it has to be the right size. So it has to be someone close to your height and close to your weight, preferably, so that it can fit in your rib cage properly. Okay. And that was a, my basic question, uh, which is like, how do they know when they have a good match or a potential yeah. match? And so it's, it's the size of the heart. And okay. Well, well, I'm sure that's one of the factors, one of the factors. Yeah. And then your blood type. Ah, okay. Yes. And then there's also these things that they call HLA, so these different antigens they look for. So it's a very complex protocol that they have to go through to make sure that a person has the right match for them so that your immune system preferably doesn't reject it. And so that when they do the surgery, the heart fits in your body and it pumps effectively in a way that it's supposed to. So the next day rolls around, you know, so they found this heart, they had to do more tests on it. It turned out to be a suitable organ. And so the next late afternoon rolls around and it was time for me to go down to the operating room. My whole family was there, the hospital nurses. I mean, everyone's just so supportive. Oh, it's, it's the coolest thing in the world. So now it's like, you're really ready. It's like, oh my gosh, this is like really happening. Like after 18 years of having heart failure, I am, I am going to get my life back. Like it's been on hold for so many years though. I, it's been a beautiful life. I get to really live again. And so I remember being rolled down to the operating room and I remember seeing my surgeon, Dr. Suryapaglu, and he has just been so special and pivotal during all of my um, preparation and recovery with my transplant. I'm so supportive of the running. I'll share that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just been mm -hmm. amazing. I remember Full having circle. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's just my whole team has just been so, so, so special to me. And I remember having eye contact with him and just having this sense of complete confidence and knowing that in moments I was going to be going to sleep. He was going to be operating on me to give me my new heart. And mm -hmm. there was no one who I'd rather be in the presence of this moment than him. And it was so cool and to just go under anesthesia and have complete peace and no fear which just blows my mind because i had had multiple surgeries in the past for heart related issues and for my cancer and before every one of those surgeries i remember praying so hard like please don't let me live please don't let me live please <laughs> yeah. let me wake up blah, blah, blah. but this time I, I, though i prayed you know it was more of gratitude to my donor and for their family so that they were okay with this mm. and that I was going to mm -hmm. give my donor heart the best life ever, mm. you know, a life just filled with purpose and to give back to the world. And so that's what happened. I went to sleep a few days later, I woke up and it was like, gosh, I mean, I'll tell you, that is a little bit difficult that the whole extubation, pro I can tell you some uh, really funny stories. <laughs> I won't skip, a, skip away from that stuff. <laughs> I get extubated a few days later and I wake up and I can tell you that my heart was beating for the first time that I was aware of in so many years. It had been so many years. I didn't remember what it felt like to have a heart in your body. I don't know. Now I feel my heart beat. I didn't know people feel that, but I never felt that with heart failure because it was such a weak heart. And I'm laying on the bed and I could feel my body like pulsing against the hospital bed in my hair. I remember hearing it kind of like, tickle the sheets like I could hear my hair I'm like how am I gonna live like this I'm never gonna be able to sleep again there's so much going on in my body this is so cool I'm not alive it was awesome
awesome. This, I am, I'm like my, literally my hand is over my mouth because I want to shout at the, like for the rooftops right now, because your description is so gorgeous and so beautiful. And if we could all feel at least once in our lives, that immense sense of gratitude that you must've felt. Oh yeah. In that moment. Carrie, it's, I have chills from head to toe telling this whole story because that feeling of being fully alive, every one of these listeners is alive, but you want to tap into that because it is the coolest experience. And there's no reason that you can't, you know, just pause and just feel your heart, put your hand on your heart and feel it beat, feel the warmth of your skin, feel the temperature around you. I mean, just, just really embrace that human experience because it is so incredibly precious and it's so meaningful and so valuable. And for me, these obstacles in my life have taught me how to live. And, and though I lived a very gracious, happy, positive, and appreciative life before all this, I'll tell you, it's at a different level. Like, oh, I can tell. <laughs> and so I love what you said, though, because when I woke up, I mean, and to this day, I really just want to like stand on top of a mountain and yell, I got an organ from the best person in the world and I am fully alive. <laughs> but it was like every single cell in my body was fully awakened and it remains fully awakened. And I describe it as like the cells were oscillating at a higher frequency. And it's just absolutely amazing. So this is crazy though. So the nurses are like, would you like to walk? And the occupational therapists come by. I'm like, yeah. And I remember asking doctors, who was the fastest person ever to walk after being extubated? So they told me when. So I was like, how many hours has it been since my extubation? <laughs> yes, I need to walk. I need to be the first person. <laughs> there she is. Okay. Oh yeah, well, wait, <laughs> yeah. it's funny. So I take my first step. I'm like, uh-oh, this is so hard. Oh, really? Was oh. it the pain from the, from the surgery? Was the it weakness? Just found ah, okay. weakness. Like okay. I had gotten so debilitated, I guess, over those few days of being intubated and not really doing much, you know, leading up to that transplant where I needed a walker for the first, like, I guess, two, three days or so. And mm-hmm. when you take those first steps, at least for me, it was hard. And I remember telling my colleagues, hey, after my transplant, I'm going to run a marathon. Don't you want to run it with me? And they're like, oh, we'll do the half. And you you can maybe do the half too. And they're like, she's not going to be able to do the half. And so now I'm like, oh man, I told them I was going to run a marathon. This is not going to happen. This is so hard to walk. So then that, that evening, I'm like, can we go walk again? I need to try that again. So that evening, the steps got a little easier. And then the oh next morning, I'm like, gosh. we need to walk again. So the poor nurses are like, that she wants to walk again. We need to, we need to unhook her. I have all these tubes and, you know, four tubes in my chest. I have all these lines out of your neck. And they're like, awesome. They're like, sure, come on, let's walk you. You're already doing two a days. <laughs> just yeah, not really. I mean, like yeah. to the door and back. Like my yeah, walk, you know? still. But okay, and and just for frame of reference, so that people don't forget, this was February 9th, twenty twenty one. Okay, so this wasn't three, four, five years ago. This was literally one year ago that this happened. So I, I just wanted to frame that up for the significance of how special it was to be able to take those first few steps and painful and hard to where you just landed a couple of weeks ago, you know, which is across the finish line of that damn marathon (laughs) that you (laughs) swore you were going to do. Well, I know. And so, you know, so I'm in the whole, you know, lifestyle medicine, whole food, plant-based, 
exercise, sleep well, embrace social connections, avoid toxic exposures, you know, all these pillars of health. And so I'm like, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to make this happen. I really want to run this marathon. And so I took every day. To, I had so much energy. It would be 1.30 in the morning and I would wake up every day in that hospital. I'm like, I am alive. It's time to get ready for the day. I put on my colorful clothes. I'd call that nurse's button. I'm like, can you unhook my IV? It's time I get dressed. They're like, Dawn, you need sleep. I'm like, I'm not going to be able to fall asleep. They worked on that a little bit. So, I, you know, they'd say you need to stay in bed until about three. And I was like, I think you're right. I probably do need some sleep. Yeah. But I was just so excited to, to be alive, alive and to, to be awake. Alive. So I would walk, 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 walk in the hospital. And, you know, I still frequently um, talk with transplant patients. And this is one of the most rewarding things after going through it. I've gone through is when you have a transplant patient that needs some suspense support or just understands what they need to do after the transplant is, you know, I say, where are your tennis shoes? They have slippers. They only have socks. I'm like, you need to have your significant other, your, your family bring some <laughs> tennis shoes up here with you. So all people getting ready for transplant, bring tennis shoes with you to the hospital so you can start walking. I love this. I you love know? this and, and, so much. And I asked a lady recently, like, how much have you walked today? And she was about 10 days out from transplant and she was only doing like one or two laps. And oh my gosh, I, the nurses were really pushing me hard. They knew that I wanted to try to do some marathon. So I was doing like 20, 30 laps. Like I, I just kept on walking in circles once I was able to, once I worked up to that in the hospital. And the reason was, is that she was embarrassed to go out in her hospital gown. And I was like, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. You know, but patients don't think that you could bring clothes. As a doctor, I know I can bring clothes in the hospital. Yeah. I wasn't shy about that. But here's my second message is if you're a patient, and you feel better in your own clothes, bring some pajamas that have buttons, bring some clothes that are colorful, something that makes you feel a little bit more like you. And then you feel more comfortable walking in the hall because you're not exposed in a gown and stuff like that, you know? And if you forgot to bring clothes, a lot of times the nurses, they'll bring you some scrubs so that you can walk. So just, just let them know you want to walk and you just don't like that gown. They'll help you out. Yeah. You but don't want your bum hanging out, but that's such great advice. I mean, like yeah. that's such great advice. Cause I feel like, you know, so many of us just feel like we're, we're, um, we're just sort of at the mercy of, of that system and yeah. to know, to have you as a physician sort of giving a, giving these practical tips and these ways to empower patients a little bit more. It's so important. Those little, just to make you, like you said, you feel more like yourself. And again, that goes back to all of that. That helps you heal when you feel like you. So thank you for sharing that. I mean, thank you. Like that little practical tip that I don't think a lot of us think about. Yeah. That's because, always made a big deal. Yeah. Colors, like something that would be, at least for women, you know, something that makes you kind of happy, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For me, it would be like eighties pop music. So I would be like, I just want eighties pop music on all the time. <laughs> I know. And I did that too. I never put, the, I'm not a TV person, but I always would have fun music in my room and I had aromatherapy in my room. So it smelled nice. And mm. so they'd always come to like, Oh, your room smells so nice. But eucalyptus or something nice and relaxing mm. or, you know, energizing, whatever it took to make the room have a little bit more of a positive mood in there. I was always yeah. Now, how, how long then were you there before they let you go home before they sent you home? I was there for another two weeks after the transplant, which felt okay. about right. I, I think that okay. you know, that wasn't the amount of time that I felt ready to go home. Um, but I'll tell you, it was so scary the day that I was ready to go home. Like, you know, when they tell you you can go home 
and they do this really special where they put you in a wheelchair, which I was like, I feel walking. Do I really need to be in a wheelchair? It's like hospital <laughs> protocol, right? Yeah, so they're yeah. pushing you down. All the nurses clapped and the doctors. So it's just, it's really meaningful. But yet it's, it was sad. And I had a dear friend and her name was Kathleen and her and I had become so close and she was still waiting for her heart and kidney transplant. She needed two transplants. Oh, wow. Wow. So, you know, you say goodbye to some of these friends that are still waiting for their organ. And, and it's it's really difficult because you know the statistics. You know that because of the organ shortage that this person who you've grown to love and you've met their family and they're still waiting mm -hmm. for this mm -hmm. gift of life or for mm -hmm. their gift of life. So mm -hmm. it's really it's really difficult. It's like, you're so excited for yourself to go home, but yet you're so sad for the other people that are still left behind. But sure. uh, I won't forget. So after they pushed me in the wheelchair, they were like, do you want to walk? And I was like, yeah. And then after I said, yeah, I was like, I don't know. Can I like, this is a far walk. Like I have to walk all the way down, all the way downstairs, then all the way. And I'm like calculating in my mind, okay, I've done this many steps you know, around the hall in a row, is that gonna equal me getting from my hospital room all the way to where my husband's gonna pick me up? <laughs> I don't think it was. So so Robert, my, one of my awesome nurses, who he, he was so special and fun during this time, he was the one that took me down. So he was pushing all my belongings because I packed so much stuff on my clothes. <laughs> so he's oh my pushing my belongings and I'm walking, right? And I, I told my doctor, I'm like, you have a lot of swelling in your legs after the transplant. So I said, you can't discharge me until I can put kind of high heels on because I really would love to walk out of here in high heels. Well, yes, they were high heels, yes. they had a little bit of a little heel. So I yeah. have these cute little shoes on and I'm walking. I'm like, oh, this is so scary. So we get to the <laughs> elevator. We're in the elevator. I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm like standing up. I just walked from my room to the elevator. I wasn't dizzy. My legs aren't shaking. I'm in an elevator. I'm not dizzy for like the first time in 18 years. We get downstairs and we walk and we have a great video of it. So I'm walking out of the hospital and I'm walking past like other healthy people. And you you just know, no one knows that I just got a heart, right? I know. Yeah, no one like, knows. I just got a heart. I'm like <laughs> wanting to yell up in the mountaintops. And people are looking at me like, why is she so happy? I'm like, I'm alive. <laughs> so it was super cool. But I remember getting home and just crying. I was like, like everything hit me. It's like, oh my gosh, like I have a heart, like I'm back to life. And so it's tough. Like there, there's a lot that goes into transplant. Like it, I make it sound so easy and like you feel great and life goes on, but boy, tons of medicines. Like in the very beginning, I think I counted that I was taking like 45 pills. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And, and is this just to increase the chances that the, of the acceptance rate of that yeah. heart? Is it yeah, that's exactly stabilizing right. blood? Is it, I, I, I can't even imagine the complexities that oh. have to occur on a second by second basis yeah. to make sure that you don't go into a rejection. You know, so you're right. The biggest medications you're taking are the anti-rejection medications. And there's usually three of them. So it's usually always prednisone and then two other ones that you're on, um, especially for that first, you know, for most patients year following the transplant. And sometimes those three medications continue thereafter. And typically if it's not three, it's going to always be at least two of those medications for the rest of your life. So your immune system is always on guard and you have someone else's heart or whatever organ you received in your body. So your immune system would want to go after that organ and attack it and kill it. So the medicines are there to inhibit the immune system from doing that. So transplant patients are very immunocompromised. And then in addition to that, you're on a lot of medications that prevent infections if the donor heart had, had a certain infection serology that was positive, that you were negative. So there may be certain antibiotics you have to take for the rest of your life. 
And then there are other medications that sometimes you have to take for your new heart. Maybe your blood pressure is a little bit high after your transplant, or maybe there is another conduction issue or another you know, related issue that wasn't expected after your transplant. Um, and then there's some electrolyte abnormalities and, and the medicines carry along a whole gamut of side effects. And so it's working with your team. And if you have a side effect, really communicating that to them so they can try to optimize the dose in a way that you're less symptomatic or maybe switching you to a different medication. Okay. Um, okay. But those medications are tough. And it's usually that first one to three months that patients are going to reject if they're going to reject. Um, but it's very, very scary. And if rejection is caught early, then in that situation, it's typically reversible. But once the immune system recognizes this foreign object, it never really forgets it. It's just you can get that under control. Mm -hmm. There's two different types mm -hmm. of, of rejection. You know, one that actually occurs at the level of the organ where the organ starts to actually demonstrate that, that failure again. And then another one where the antibodies are just potentially recognizing it. Okay. Okay. So, so it can be really, really um, scary. And so after a heart transplant, you're getting biopsies of your heart you know, every few weeks in the beginning, and then it goes to every month. So it's like, wait a minute, I just got my new heart, and you're needing to take that piece, pieces <laughs> of my new heart. Yes, this, excuse you know, me, I need this. They put this big tube, not big, it feels like it's big, but they put this little wire, actually feels like it's huge, and they take these snippets out of your heart, these biopsies, and they send it down to the lab, and that's how they find out if you're in rejection, is from okay. these heart biopsies. So okay. it's really amazing what they do. And then after that, they send you to cardiac rehab. So which I means yay exercise yeah. <laughs> yeah so i was I so excited with cardiac rehab every day i'd go i would want to the next day try to increase my miles per hour on the treadmill by about 0.3 so at about uh four to six weeks i was walking at about four miles an hour and i would go to cardiac rehab three days a week on the off days i would do my bicycle but i would typically only exercise 30 to 60 minutes um on those days that i would exercise and then by Week six, post-transplant, I worked with Dr. Suryapoglu, my surgeon, and I said, hey, listen, the World Transplant Games are virtual this year, and they are at the three-and-a-half-month mark of my transplant. I would really like to do that. But it's a 5K, and if I don't start jogging today at six weeks, <laughs> I'm never going to be able to run that 5K. And he's like, go ahead. I trust you. And so he gave me the green light. You know, we stayed in close contact to make sure that my incision was properly healed, that I was being very aware of my symptoms. He saw me back for an exam to make sure everything looked good. And I started with just a simple run walk and I would increase that duration. And by three and a half months, I ran the World Transplant Games 5K. Oh my and I gosh. Five of them. I was like, I'm going to do five of them. I'm going to do one each day of the week. I'm so excited. So that oh was three and a half gosh. months. And then at four months, I was in Arizona. We took a family vacation because, you know, you really are not supposed to travel too far. but since we know there's a Mayo Clinic out there, Mayo said, go ahead, enjoy yourself, go with your family. And gosh, if there's any issues, Mayo's right there. And yes, in yes, yeah. So I visited Camelback Mountain and I had no intention on going all the way to the top. But I, my husband and I was like, let's just go halfway up. So I went a little way up and I'm like, I feel pretty darn good. Let's keep on going. And he's like behind me. I'm like, sorry, buddy, you're slowing this me down. I'm going. <laughs> so really, I mean, I'll tell you, this is so cool though. It was like, man, my heart was beating just like it did that first day when I woke up after extubation. And it was like a moment that my donor heart and I, it was like we became one. It was like heart and soul just beating and that it was exhilarating. And then you get to the top of that mountain and this is as the sunrise is coming up. And I have this beautiful picture of the sun, like just gleaming in it. Oh, it's just miraculous. Like, 
wow. Like, I mean, I wish everyone could feel that, right? Mm. Just that euphoria of being alive. So I did Camelback Mountain and it was a little bit over four months for my transplant. <laughs> but I was training <laughs> really incredible. smart, right? I mean, I was hydrated. I'm eating a whole food plant-based diet. So lots of vegetables, lots of fruits, whole grains. I didn't do any oils. I would do some nuts and seeds. I did tons of beans, tons of soy for protein. So that was my diet. But yeah. I did nothing from a package, nothing processed, no animal products. And I've always lived this healthy sort of lifestyle. Sure. Yeah. You. I The attitude is a lot of it, but I really think fundamentally that whole food plant-based diet is really what helped to reduce the inflammation so that I could have this quick recovery. So I had less side effects from my rejection medications. And so I could do these really amazing things. And so, yeah, so I did uh, Camelback Mountain and then I did my first official 5K. It was um, at the five month mark. Okay. And yep. then there was another uh, uh, 10 mile race that one of my cardiac uh, sports specialists wanted to run with me just to see how I was doing in October. So he ran a 10 mile race with me just to see if I looked okay and if it would be reasonable for me to really pursue marathon training. And he gave me the green light. And so it was October when I officially said, okay, we're on for the marathon. And so that was the point when a coach, Jeff Galloway reached out to oh, me. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, cause he gosh. had just, he had had a heart, uh, was it a heart attack last year? He did in April of last year. Yes. So yes. World he, famous marathon runner and coach and famous for the Galloway approach to running, which is the run walk yeah. approach to running. So he reached out to you. Tell yeah, me more. I, I, I had I looked online because people had said, you know, you may want to check this out because up to this point I was doing mainly all running and I was noticing when I would just do all straight out running, I wouldn't feel so hot at the end. Like I would come home and I had some palpitations. I'd feel pretty wiped out. I was like, hmm, this is kind of interesting. So folks said, just check out his method, see what you think. So I signed up for like an online newsletter and then I was going to sign up for some e-coaching and he personally reached out to me and he really was intrigued by the story because of what he had been through. And he has just been so supportive of all of what I've been going through. And honestly, without him, this wouldn't have been possible because once I started increasing my miles, you figure 18 years of doing nothing, all of those small stabilizing muscles were so weak. I don't care what kind of diet you're on, you know, yeah. inflammation <laughs> yeah. or not, those are weak muscles. Nothing's going to help that yes. except for proper yes. training. Yes. So coach Jeff Galloway gave me this wonderful workout regimen and I did the run, walk, run. And I really don't walk that much. I really only walk like five to eight seconds, which works for me, but it's enough to offload the heart, to offload some of the joints I have done to this day. I still do physical therapy once or twice a week to continue okay. to work on those muscle stabilizers. I do acupuncture at least once a week. So I'm really doing a lot of things to try to uphold as healthy of a body as possible. Um, and so uh come february 5th maritime uh, marathon time rolls around now three weeks prior to the marathon uh coach jeff galloway had me do a 25 mile run which was the smartest thing in the world okay. i had a lot of friends okay. like why are you doing such a long distance but he's like you need the confidence and he was absolutely right because that 25 mile run having that under my belt and feeling great on that 25 mile run let me know on marathon day that hey this is fine i can go one mile mm -hmm. longer it's mm -hmm. not going to be a big deal I do remember he, he like, he likes to do those pretty long runs. You know, some marathon programs might stop you at like 18 or 20 might be your longest run. But oftentimes I think what you said with the whole run walk, it helps 
you recover faster. So you're able to go a little longer without being so sore. Whereas if you're just running or slogging through 18 miles, your form breaks down, you can get really sore. That's when injuries start to happen. So the run walk approach does allow for a little longer sessions. Yeah, I think it's it was key for me and I really to this day enjoy it. and it's so interesting with your times because at first I was so competitive with my times and you know it is what it is even with the Donna Marathon I was frustrated I was mad at my time I was like I can't. I wanted such a better time but I ran into a few little a few little obstacles at mile like 14, 18 and 24 that I had to just really listen to my body about so I was really smart about this and you know, my message to anyone who's undergoing any kind of major surgery or sets a goal to run a marathon or run a 5K, you need to listen to your body, you know, and you need to talk with your medical team and you need to train very smart. And that is one thing that I was fully dedicated to this. You know, I made sure I got proper sleep. You know, I took some time off of social media. I stopped watching TV. I haven't watched TV this whole year because I don't have time for TV, right? Mm -hmm. Because if I'm not working or if I'm not exercising or doing my physical therapy exercises twice a day, then <laughs> I should be sleeping or yes, preparing my own yes. plant-based food. So I was, like, I was like really committed to doing this right. And that's what it takes. But, you know, I don't think people have to go out and do a marathon to prove they're fully alive or anything. For me, it was really special to see, wow, if you take really meticulous care and respect your body, you're given this beautiful gift. Anything is possible. I, I mean, it's so here it is, you know, so I was just so excited to be able to run this marathon in honor of my patients. And, you know, when I run for me, it is such an experience to just feel and celebrate life and reflect on my purpose and, and what it is that I want to do in life, being alive. And I just take that time to give gratitude. I get emotional with every run and it's just so meaningful. You know, that feeling of my heart beating and that reminder that a stranger gave me life. And just mm. to give gratitude back to that person for that loving, uh, that lovingness and to their family for losing their loved one and to my medical team for just being so supportive and loving and understanding and doing everything that people in medicine do, you know, the doctors, the nurses, the people that come in and clean your room, the people that take your food order. I mean, these people make that whole experience so special and they are just so loving. And that's what it's really all about. So I just Dawn, this <laughs> I'll tell you what, earlier when you said, when you passed out during your presentation and you joked that you didn't, you didn't see the light. Uh, <laughs> I think it's because you are the light, Dawn. Oh, that is you, so I don't know. you are a light and a gift. And I, I have to ask the, the obvious question, which is, have you been in touch with your donor's family? Mm, that's such a, thank you for asking me that. And I sent my donor's family a letter. Mm -hmm. um, you're allowed to do that at the six month mark. So I did do that, but I haven't heard back from them yet. Okay. So, okay. you know, it's so difficult for them. It's so different for me because I have the celebration of life, but for them, they lost someone. And, and you know, I don't know why my, I do know my donor was a woman because it had to be someone who was small enough to fit into my body. So I did know it was a woman, but I don't know any other specifics to how she died or what the circumstances were. So it's very difficult. And I just hope one day that the family can, we can unite. And so they can see that their loved one is being well taken care of and living this this amazing life. And I want to do so much good and give back to, to the world in a way that can, you know, extend love and, and compassion to humanity. I think this is, there's no time better than now to do that. And I'm positioned in a way that I can in what I do in my profession. And 
and people like you to invite me here. So I thank you, Carrie. I really, really appreciate it. My pleasure. I am for the first time in my life, almost speechless because I don't think I've ever met anyone who exudes so much joy and gratitude as, as you do for everything that you have gone through in your life. And knowing that you and I are roughly the same age and probably we're at the same football games, uh, (laughs) but (laughs) to, to be able to endure everything that you've endured and come out so, so, so positive and so ready to make long life, uh, lifelong change, not just with yourself, but with the patients that you serve through lifestyle medicine and those pillars of lifestyle medicine, which are so, so, so important. So thank you, Don. (laughs) I'm just, I am speechless. (laughs) Oh no. I mean, I'll be honest, every transplant recipient I have met who has received their gift of life has the same outlook. And so anyone who's on the fence about organ donation, the one myth is that the hospital establishment, the medical teams aren't going to let you die any sooner because you have checked the box that you want to be an organ donor. If anything, they're going to work very, very hard to keep you alive because they want to keep all those organs alive. Yes. And then there's a chance you may become alive in that, you know, <laughs> your brain may wake up in that time to where you're once again alive. So check that box because everyone who receives this gift of life, this is the kind of life that you see these people living in that mm exuberant vitality that one just can't describe unless you've gone through this process. But, you know, for anyone who hasn't experienced these sorts of adversities or who has, but maybe it's something different that you feel kind of down in the dumps, it, it there is a way to feel above and beyond that. And I think so much of mental health nowadays and treatment for mental health and depression and anxiety or burnout, whatever it is you're experiencing, really just take us from the basement to the first level. But how can we help people get beyond that to experience these higher levels of existence? And I wish that people didn't have to experience near death or, or, or something close to that or being told they may die to really change the way they live. But you just want to return to the heart of who you are and try to discover your authentic self and, and ask yourself what gives your own life meaning and go after that. And it's that purpose in life that kept me going because there was no way I was going to stop short of that, you know? And so that's my message. If you'd like to learn and watch a little bit more about Dawn and her journey, I've added a couple of links in the show notes to some YouTube videos that have been made with, uh, with her as the star. And it is probably the best rabbit hole that we could all go down. And I know that you'll want to share it with others because the lessons here are applicable to any of us. We don't need to be going through a massive, massive health crisis to benefit from being a beacon of light, love, and faith. So thanks again, Don, for being that example for all of us, regardless of where we are in life. And I so look forward to learning more about you and seeing where your new found marathoning takes you because clearly this is only the beginning. So thanks a lot for listening to I Could Never Do That and we'll see you next time.